Tonight I'd like to talk about uh, one of the most wonderful and uplifting lists in all of the, the Buddhist teachings, and that is the Brahma Viharas, or qualities of heart that are developed through practice. And I'd like to talk about them in the context of right effort in the sense that um, the technical definition of right effort, there are four aspects of right effort. Two having to do with unwholesome states, that is guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. That means guarding the sense doors. Don't, putting, don't put yourself in places where you're likely to have more grasping or aversion if you can help it. Um, diminishing unwholesome states that have, that have arisen. And then there are two aspects of right effort that have to do with cultivation of wholesome states. And that those two are developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen and increasing wholesome states that have arisen, enhancing them, strengthening them. And so, in the context of right effort, it's a very important thing to keep in mind that this practice is not only about seeing the nature of suffering. That's a very important understanding. And the more one is in touch with the nature of suffering and isn't frightened by it and can open up to it, the uh, greater the possibility of peace and, and all the good qualities that one is trying to develop. But only to focus on the suffering is a limited view of what this practice of mindfulness is about. In fact, it's a very important and powerful aspect of practice to cultivate, develop wholesome states when they are arising or if they haven't as yet, to develop them consciously. <clears throat> and I'd like to uh, share with you a, a beautiful passage by Thich Nhat Hanh about this quality of developing wholesome states, what he calls nourishing healthy seeds. He says, Consciousness exists on two levels, as seeds and as manifestations of these seeds. Suppose we have a seed of anger in us. When conditions are favorable, that seed may manifest as a zone of energy called anger. It is burning and it makes us suffer a lot. It is very difficult for us to be joyful at the moment the seed of anger manifests. Every time a seed has an occasion to manifest itself, it produces new seeds of the same kind. 
When I smile, the seeds of smiling and joy have come up. As long as they manifest, new seeds of smiling and joy are planted. But if I don't practice smiling for a number of years, that seed will weaken and I may not be able to smile anymore. There are many kinds of seeds in us, both wholesome and unwholesome. Every time we practice mindful living, we plant healthy seeds and strengthen the healthy seeds already in us. If we plant wholesome, healing, refreshing seeds, they will take care of the negative seeds, even without our asking them. To succeed, we need to cultivate a good reserve of refreshing seeds. What this is pointing to is when there is a wholesome feeling that has arisen, if we can be present for it, if we can value it and have the intention to develop it, we experience the karmic result both in the immediate moment of how good it feels and we are increasing the likelihood of those responses in the future. We are planting wholesome seeds. Now, one might say, well, you could get kind of puffed up by all the wholesome things that you see in in yourself. Wow, aren't I a neat person? Gee, look at that compassion that just came through me. And this is not quite what the Buddha was talking about. Actually, he said, it's very important and um, good practice to take delight in the wholesome, but this is different than identifying with it as being mine, that I own, that I possess. This is one of, the, uh, one of my favorite quotes of the Buddha from the Majjhima Nikaya. He says, thinking, I am practicing generosity, one takes delight, is gladdened in the heart, has a deeper inspiration for the Dharma. In that reflection, oh, here is generosity coming through. Now this is very different than, look how generous I am, but rather it is feeling the wonderful experience of the generosity as it comes through and being inspired by it, feeling the joy of it. You see the difference between the two. It is just passing through you and as you're more present for it, the likelihood is that you'll be inspired and that you perhaps even will act on that impulse. Because as we're present, it gives rise to action. And the the karmic consequence of a thought is, has some degree of of consequence. As you've seen, there are thoughts that can trouble us and thoughts that can 
that can uplift us. When we are mindful around our thoughts, however, they have very little impact on us, no matter how troublesome the content might be. When the thought is translated into words, into speech, the karmic consequence of that is that much deeper. Whether it's an unskillful communication, there is a consequence to that. Or if it's a skillful communication, there is a deeper sowing of karmic seeds. When the thought is translated into action, the karmic result is still deeper. So it's important to be present for our wholesome qualities as well as the unwholesome ones so we can give more power to them, strength to them. And one of the mysterious things about practice is that just by paying attention, just by being willing to open up our hearts and our minds to this moment, we start to open in many, many ways. You know, here you are just trying to feel a breath or just lifting your foot. And over the course of the days, it was beautiful to see in, in some of the sharing today as we started to work with speech for those departing yogis, saying, I was amazed at how open my heart was. I had no idea. Because as you are learning to open to all parts of your experience, the beauty shines through. It's not like you can say, oh, well, just let's get the love out, you know, or I want to come to this retreat and get that compassion out, you know. But, you know, that other stuff, the yuck and the fears and the, and the anger, you know, let's just, you know, I don't want to look at that. We might have that hope that we don't have to contact that too much, but that's not how it works. Actually, if we are willing to open up to the whole show, to the anger and to the fear and to the sadness and to the whatever it is, that quality of opening allows for all the beauty to come through. And it happens in a very direct way. We're learning to open. Acting on that impulse as we go in the world is a beautiful thing too as we feel that. I was reading um, recently uh, in this, la- this retreat actually a new book by Stephen Levine called um, A Year to Live where he did this experiment of imagining that he had one year to live and suggests this as a, um, as a practice. And it's, uh, it's a very good idea good practice. Who knows how long we have. And in that, the appreciation of all the blessings come through and the wanting to um, communicate all the things that are left unresolved come through. I remember reading in this this, uh, article, there was a survey done of people in senior homes on the things that, uh, as they look back on their life, they um, 
they would change. And by far, the overwhelming uh, response was regretting not having told people that they loved them, not having acted on the positive impulses of doing something that, um, that just stayed as a thought, not as an action. <clears throat> so, the practice, as we open, develops these certain, these four particular qualities of heart that are called Brahma-viharas. If you're not familiar with uh, the terminology, Brahma, the divine, the celestial, the heavenly, and vihara, abode. The divine abodes, or the sublime states, that are a natural byproduct of practice. And they are called divine abodes. They are considered to be boundless, limitless. And the reason that they are boundless and limitless is that they come through an understanding of non-separation that as we see that we are not separate from the rest of life, there is no limit to these qualities of heart, of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, and of equanimity. And somebody was asking before about the metta, doesn't it seem that it's me wishing something for somebody else? And at the beginning, that is so. But the metta and all of these practices start to point the way to see that there is a unity to life. And that duality is seen through and understood in non-duality, seeing it is simply life blessing life through all of us no separation. I'll share with you a little bit about the practice of the Brahma-viharas. It might seem mechanical at first, but every time you are sowing the seeds for wishing well, again, you are nourishing those healthy seeds. You're inclining the mind towards uh, towards that quality of heart as you say the phrases. And you go through all different changes in relationship to the phrases. Sometimes it seems like you're feeling anything but love as you do the metta meditation. I did a, a metta retreat. We'll talk about metta first. I did a metta retreat here a number of years ago and it was a 10-day retreat. And as I was doing these phrases, I felt about every quality except for loving kindness that one could imagine. Mostly, I remembered all the awful things I did in my life. All the things that I felt ashamed of, all the things that I just shuddered at, all the things that I wished I could change. And 
all the ways that my heart felt really cold and you know, just unloving. At, so, at one point, it, it was so bad, I kept on remembering these thoughts that I, I thought I had put behind me. I decided to make a list of the 20 worst things in my life. Right? Not just kind of bad things, but really awful. Yeah. I only got up to 16 of that level, and I felt, okay, well, 16, all right, pretty bad, but couldn't get up to 20. And it was interesting, after I went through that process of purification, which is really what the metta is, it's a cleanser. It brings up everything that would get in the way of the loving heart for us to open up to something deeper. It was like I processed them on a new level. And what was interesting was uh, this fall I did a loving-kindness practice for six weeks at the, uh, uh, the three-month course. And it was like all the stuff that I had gone through on the previous one had been processed. It was amazing. I kind of felt, hey, this is really neat. I remembered those things, but it was like, okay, that was old news. Yeah, I, I did my, my stuff for it. I, there was some wise reflection and a commitment to do things in a different way. But there was actually the possibility of feeling great love for myself. This is not easy for a lot of people. It's, it's this very mysterious way that we have of excluding ourselves from the love that we'd want to give to everybody else. <clears throat> what um, Albert Einstein calls an optical delusion of consciousness. You know, somehow we can think that everybody else is worthy of our love, but when it comes to me, oh no, I'm really rotten. If only, only people knew. We hold ourselves up to such high standards. You know, a thought came to me a year or so ago. Just imagine meeting somebody who had the same tastes as you, similar interests, who got all your jokes, <laughs> who understood just when you got caught, who was about the same level of appearance so you didn't have to get nervous about the comparing mind, uh, who really understood, who really understood you. What if you met somebody like that? You think you'd like to be around them? Yeah. I would imagine saying, God, I finally met somebody who gets it. You, know? <laughs> you would probably be so excited about meeting somebody who understood the world the way you do and who understood your sorrows and your joys. They would probably be a very close, if not your best friend. But somehow, we step outside of ourselves and don't let us let ourselves enjoy what's really here all along. On this uh, metta retreat, 
something that I found very interesting was shifting perspectives of consciousness. And as the first few days, you do the loving kindness towards yourself. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. But then at one point, I imagined seeing myself through someone's eyes who I knew loved me a lot. And it was interesting for just a, just a moment, just seeing what they saw and feeling what they felt. It was, oh, wow, what a neat guy. Yeah. And I started to feel it. It was like this completed circuit, feeling it in a whole different way. And all it is is just a, a shift of consciousness. Just imagine for a moment as we as we do this, I might do a few short uh, guided, very short guided exercises. Just imagine somebody who really appreciates you. And just slip into their reality and see yourself through their eyes. See what they see. Could you feel it for just a moment? All it takes is a moment. I remember seeing the Dalai Lama and saying, somebody asked him about unworthiness. This has been a recurrent theme over the last few years as he's come to the West. Now he's kind of gotten that this is a, a big issue for people. But at first, he couldn't even understand what unworthiness was about. And somebody had to explain it to him. And he said, oh, this is a very um, major misunderstanding, you know, unworthiness. What would make you think that everything else belongs in the universe and somehow you're not worthy of being here? You're not worthy of, of this love. <clears throat> but it's hard, as, uh, as the, the poet Galway Cannell says, we need to reteach a thing its loveliness. We need to relearn how lovely we really are. Sometimes with our um, self-condemning, we see all the things that are rotten about us, we forget the beauty. And one very useful thing to contemplate, particularly in retreat practice is the sincerity that you bring to your practice. Where does that come from? What is that about? Somehow you've been graced or blessed to really feel deeply about awakening or about understanding suffering or about becoming a more loving person. And this is a a very wonderful thing to reflect on. And everybody here has it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it through this far, because this is not an easy thing to do. Remember, again, the Dalai Lama um, talking uh, about 
how he deals with all the, the suffering that he sees. And he says, my sincere motivation is my protection. And then the next day, somebody asked him, how do you deal with all the fear? And he said that sometimes he has fear. And he sees fear from people around, around him a lot. And he says, my sincere motivation is my protection. It was exactly the same answer. This can be our protection, our sincere motivation. With that, if nothing else, with that, we are worthy of kindness and love. So in the, the metta practice, the first of these, this loving kindness, you start with yourself and then you systematically cultivate that same quality towards different uh, people in a, a cast of characters. The next one um, unless yourself is very hard to do, then you might start with this one, is a benefactor, somebody who has um, inspired you or that has helped you develop or understand, and has been a teacher for you or a mentor. And it's wonderful to realize we are not doing this on our own. We've been inspired by others. We've been gifted as was said before, it's been given to us, people who inspire us, and they can be a source of great happiness and joy. When I was doing the retreat, um, the Dalai Lama was my benefactor at first. It was, he was the benefactor, and then I saw, actually I went through a little, a little dance around the benefactor. After a while, I kind of got used to it. I'd, I'd been using him for about, oh, six or seven days or so. And um, you can habituate to anything. You c it's not possible to keep feeling that deep, gushy love, even when, it's, when it sometimes shoots out. So there was one morning where I was thinking uh, about him, but then it was getting kind of flat, and all of a sudden, my dog came to my mind. <laughs> my dog pal. And I could, I could smell him and feel him, and it was like so visceral. And I got so filled with love. I said, wow, this, is my, this has been my love object. This is my benefactor. And I remembered one teacher had used a stuffed animal for six months, so I figured, well, maybe I could use my dog. You know? <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I'll switch to to, to Pal as my benefactor. But then I felt a little guilty about it because <laughs> I didn't know how, if it was disrespectful to, you know, <laughs> to do that or it was bad practice. So I went back and forth around and around. And finally, I decided to call a little meeting with His Holiness and Pal and myself <laughs> to see if this is okay. It was, you know, and his Holiness, the Dalai Lama, was saying, it's okay, it's fine, I have many, many people who love me. You can, you can use your dog. And Pal was there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I decided I, I'd wait until the interview and I'd stay with the Dalai Lama and was told, stick with the Dalai Lama. Uh, 
But anyway, anybody can be your benefactor. Anyone who touches and opens your heart. And then after the benefactor can be um, working with a friend, somebody who really touches you. On that particular aspect of the practice, I, I understood something in a new way. Uh, you know, it was mentioned, Jack mentioned it uh, the other night, about the near enemies of each of these wonderful qualities. And the near enemy of loving kindness is attachment. Now, loving kindness is an outflowing. It's a generosity of heart that doesn't want to possess anything. Attachment looks like love, but it is a contraction. There's fear in there. There's grasping in there. And that had all made a lot of sense to me, you know, theoretically and uh, in my own practice. But as I did it with this one particular friend, I somehow was surprised at uh, the fact that I couldn't really love, I wasn't getting in touch with the love for this person that I knew had been there. This person is uh, somebody I have such great love for and gratitude for. And I thought, okay, I'll just let it be how it is, which is what you do with with the practice. You don't try to force anything. But as I worked with this person a little bit more, I started getting in touch with these thoughts that said, but why doesn't he see things this way? Or, gee, I, I really wanted a little bit more approval or recognition, and he just never gave it to me, and this and that. As I was very, very honest, I could see that there were a lot of strings that were combined with this feeling of real deep gratitude and love. And as I became in touch with them, I just saw through, oh, this is what I was bringing to the equation. And in a moment, I remember just, it's just a thought away, just how deeply I love this person. So it's something for us all to look at in our lives when we love somebody a whole lot, to see just how that grasping clouds that outpouring of um, expansive heart. So then you go through, after the benefactor and dear friend, then you go through neutral person. Neutral, somebody who you don't have much to do with or don't have much feeling one way or another. And it was amazing just how in seeing, um, when I picked somebody, just how little feeling I had, not only for them, but for everyone who I didn't have a strong feeling one way or another. And as you start cultivating that feeling, as you direct that loving energy, this guy on the retreat became my love object. I would be, you know, doing my job in the bathroom, and all of a sudden in the morning he'd come through and say, ah, there he is! You know, wow. May you be happy, may you be healthy. You can develop it on anyone. As long as you don't have some kind of timetable and frustration saying, okay, it's not happening yet, you can let it go. Then there's the difficult person. Okay. 
not probably hard to get in touch with some difficult people in our lives. It wasn't so hard for me. But as I looked at this person, I just saw who they are trying to do the best they can with the conditioning that they've brought to their lives that make things hard, not only for me, but for other people in touch with them. There was a bit more of a, of a friendliness, of a kindness. And then one day again, I, I flipped this, played a little flip of consciousness, and I imagined this person in line to greet the Dalai Lama, okay? One of many, many people. And I just became the Dalai Lama for a moment, you know? and was blessing each person as they came by and giving them a kata. And, and then there was this person. And I was still the Dalai Lama and just bowing and looking and looking into their eyes. And, and all of a sudden it came to me, oh, oh dear, you're a Buddha inside. In just a moment, oh, there is a Buddha inside. I just had been so conditioned in my contraction to see the exterior and not feel all the, the, the pain in that person's heart. And all of a sudden, seeing their beauty changed everything. I need to move on here. I see. As we go through the difficult, then going to all beings and it's possible to start to radiate out that love to everyone, all male, all female, all enlightened beings, all worldly beings, all devas, all humans, all in the lower realm, just keeping on planting those seeds. And it seemed at first, oh, come on, this is a little bit too much. But at some point, uh, the image, I don't know if you've seen this movie, Goodbye Mr. Chips, came to my mind. The original Goodbye Mr. Chips with Robert Donat from 1933. Great movie if you ever see it on. And in the end of this movie, there's like all of these students that Mr. Chips taught over 50 years, one after another after another. And in my mind, there was who came through. There was George Bush and Clinton and the Buddha and Jesus and Hitler and Mother Teresa and just the whole sea of humanity coming through. And in a moment, it all became a play of consciousness through these different human forms. Not this person and that person and that person. It is simply play of consciousness coming through. It's a wonderful feeling. So this is this quality of loving kindness that is not grasping, that is simply wishing well. And in the practice of the metta and all of these, it's like a, a splashing. You, it's a, as Carol was talking about today, a well-wishing for the, the person. It's just that intention, and you splash them with the feeling. It's a great feeling. The second is compassion, which is talked of as a quivering of the heart. In the face of suffering, feeling an openness of heart that's not afraid to, um, to feel that suffering. The near enemy of compassion is pity, where you, where you want to close up in response to it. And it's um, incredible how we all have the capacity 
to care, which is really what compassion is, to feel the pain of another and to want to respond. As the philosopher Kierkegaard talked about, this mysterious thing that would make us put our lives in danger when we'd see another who's in danger. How does that work? How, does, how are we wired like that? And it can be developed, just like the loving-kindness. This is again from the Dalai Lama. This is a great quote. He says, Whenever I speak about the importance of compassion and love, people ask me, what is the method for developing them? This is not easy. I don't think there's any particular package or method that enables you to develop these qualities instantaneously. You cannot just press a button and wait for them to appear. I know that many people expect things like that from a Dalai Lama, but really all I have to offer is my own experience. And then he talks. He says, I come from the northeastern part of Tibet. Usually people from that area are quite short-tempered. So if I get angry, I can use this as an excuse. (laughs) When I was 15 or 20, I was quite short-tempered. But through Buddhist training and through difficult experiences, I have been able to improve my mental stability. Difficult experiences are very good training for the mind. They help us to, de- to develop a kind of inner determination. Today, compared with 20 or 30 years ago, my mental stability is much better. Of course, irritation still arises sometimes, but it disappears quickly, and heated agitation is almost never there. As a result, I experience more happiness and joy. When the worst news comes, I feel uncomfortable for a few minutes, but afterward, I don't feel much disturbance. Through training, we can change. Having the intention to develop that kind, caring, that compassion, it starts to happen. And it doesn't mean we have to go out and rescue and save the world. Sometimes when we have that as the, um, the goal or the ideal, it can just seem so enormous we wouldn't know where to begin. But rather, it's responding in the way that feels appropriate right here. Not so that we can rescue and save the world, but just in our own practice, we can have that cultivation of caring and respond to the suffering right in front of us. And sometimes it simply means just being present for the suffering that's around. You know, when you're really confused or lost or panicky, if you are around somebody who isn't trying to fix or change you, but can simply be a present witness, a loving, kind, present witness, this gives you the space to go through what you need to. There was a contest for the most caring of all the children in this town. And the winner was a four-year-old who, when he saw a neighbor across the street crying, 
went across and sat in his lap. And when he came back, his parents asked him, as the man started to quiet down and feel, uh, feel a smile on his face, as, the, as the, he came back, the parents said, what did you say to that person? And the boy said, nothing. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. <laughs> That's sometimes what compassion is. Just being there for somebody, not needing to change them. When I went from the, compa- from the loving-kindness practice to the compassion practice, it was a great jolt to go from this expansive feeling of, of love to focusing in on the suffering. And in fact, it was, it was quite jarring. And I was saying the phrase, the, the classical phrase, may you be free of suffering as I brought somebody to mind. Uh, but it seemed like I was trying to get rid of their suffering, like suffering was somehow something that I, you know, if I could only take away from them, then it would be better. And uh, I was kind of confused, actually. And I went to Carol. I said, wait, this is not working. And I said, uh, this may you be free of suffering. I can't get it. And she said, well, you know, there's an alternate phrase. And then she reminded me, which is, I care about your suffering. And as soon as I said that, ah, that I can do. That takes all the responsibility out of, you know, having to fix this person. And the way you do this practice is you think of somebody who is suffering and just sending them your care. So just for a moment, go inside and think of somebody who's having a hard time. And rather than fixing them, if you can, hold them in your heart and simply let them know in your heart or through your words inside, I care about your suffering. I care about your suffering. And now, just for a moment, take delight in your capacity to care. Isn't that wonderful that you can do that? This is feeling the uplifting of compassion. It feels really good to care. The third in these four divine abodes is what's called mudita, or usually translated as sympathetic joy, or joy in the joy around us. Sometimes this is not easy to feel 
when we're around somebody who is just having great success, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to muster up that feeling of, of joy. came across this quote from Montaigne. It said, There is something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortune of our friends. It's strange, although it's common, why when we see joy in others, there's this feeling of, well, what is the feeling? Oh, not, not my joy. Maybe they've got the corner on the market, you know. And it's based on this misunderstanding that there's a certain quota of happiness, you know. And if they have it, then maybe it's a little less for me. Or that comparing mind that says, oh, gee, you know, why aren't I, why don't I have it together? Why aren't I as successful or whatever? And this is starting to congeal the self again. You identify and say, oh, this is me. This is what... I, I need for approval to be worthy of, of love, to be okay. And we measure ourselves up in a merciless way. When really the idea of mudita is based on the, uh, on the, the fact that when there is joy, when there is happiness, there's more happiness in the world. It's not like when you walk into a into a room and there's a lot of angry people that they've got the anger and you don't. Actually, you usually pick up the vibes, right? Well, it's the same way. You can pick up the vibes. There is more happiness available for you, for you to be inspired by. And you can get what in old terminology was called a contact high. You know, oh, wow, there's more happiness here. And as we start to see it, we see there's beauty all around us. This is one of, the be- one of the wonderful things of the practice. Besides seeing the suffering around us, we start to be much more aware of all the beauty around us. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in, in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. 
To rejoice in these things doesn't mean we get carried away with them. The experience of joy no longer occurs if we indulge in beauty and try to grasp it, or if we hold on to the experience of joy to try to have it all the time. But once you have insight, then you will find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. The near enemy of mudita is exhilaration, when you get so swept away that you lose yourself, you know, like after World Series championships or soccer championships and there's riots because people lose themselves. That's going overboard. But the beauty around us, to start being inspired by it, the beauty in nature and the beauty in the people around us as we see the love shine through them or their happiness shine through, if we are present for it, it can touch us deeply. Just imagine for a moment, let's just do a, a short one with this. Think of someone who has become blessed with some good fortune, good success. And somebody, if it's possible to think of somebody who you like, it's helpful. And just for a moment, see their joy. Feel their joy. And the phrase in the mudita is, may your happiness continue, may your happiness grow. Just for a moment, feel how good that feels to wish that for them. May your happiness continue and may it grow. With all of these, just want to remind you that if you don't feel particularly what, uh, what the heart quality is, that's okay. You have metta for that. You have uh, a real space of awareness that's, that's, not, um, that's not judging your experience. But it's wonderful when we can, for a moment, just feel that delight in somebody else's happiness. The fourth quality, the fourth Brahma-vihara, is called equanimity, a balance of mind, or balance of heart. And this is the thing that gives space to the other three. And you go through the loving-kindness practice and the compassion practice and the, the joyful practice, and there's a real aliveness and a connection and a, um, um, a lot of energy. And the equanimity is the ground that balances it all out. 
so you don't get swept away by the feelings, but can hold them in a space that sees them as simply qualities of heart underneath which can be a balance, a great peace that's not trying to make anything happen. And the equanimity is rooted in the understanding of those three characteristics that were talked about, rooted in the understanding that everything is impermanent. And so to want to make something happen is uh, doomed to frustration as it changes. Things come and they go. That is the nature of things. To want to hold on to experience or control experience is dukkha, is painful, is suffering. And when one sees more and more the selfless nature of experience, anatta, one has this sense of equanimity that there is a lawful unfolding to life. That it's not that we can run the show or that we can make, make something different happen. There is a lawful unfolding, an understanding on some level of karma, that actions have consequences. And this equanimity is rooted in seeing this law of karma. And in fact, the, the equanimity phrases, after you've been wishing well to your benefactor and, and sending compassion to your uh, loved one and the whole cast of characters and going through the joy with all of these different characters, the equanimity phrase using these same people is, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Now that might seem a bit cool, but actually equanimity as was pointed out uh, by Jack, is not indifference. It is a great caring, but understanding the way things are. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And that relieves you of the responsibility of fixing everything. I had uh, the great lesson in equanimity uh, in this retreat, uh, the Brahma Vihara retreat, with my son Adam, who is now 10, who's the apple of my eye. I love him to bits. And after feeling a lot of metta on one particular sitting, I just went through these different states of, of concentration on loving kindness for him. He was sitting right in front of me. Oh, may you be safe from harm. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And really feeling a lot of loving kindness. And then the compassion. I saw his, 
his um, sad moments when he wasn't included in the game or when he struck out and you know just felt his his sufferings you know oh i care about your suffering and then his successes with mudita you know oh may your happiness continue may it grow and there he is with his big trophy and all sorts of things and then came the equanimity you are heir to your karma your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And at that point, I actually went through um, a number of different images. Just the most um, horrific images that a parent could imagine. From terminal illness to car accident to, you know, drug addiction to all sorts of awful things, just one after another as possibilities and saying, yeah, this too is a possibility. Okay, can I be here for this and see that I can just give this person as much love as I can and their happiness depends on their actions and I can do what I can to help them make wise choices, but it's really out of my hand. And it was at first difficult and after a while tremendously freeing. It was wonderfully freeing. And then what happened actually was after Adam took the seat, then I put different people in the seat, you know, my wife Jane, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, you know. And it was like just reminding them, okay, remember, you're heir to your karma. I put Jack in the seat. Remember, you're heir to your karma. You know? <laughs> I put my, all my friends, you know, I put myself, you are heir to your karma. And it was like a mini reminder, oh yes, okay, let's just understand how karma works. And as the Dalai Lama said, if you had a choice between understanding a deep understanding of emptiness or of karma, go for the karma. Because you can have a deep understanding of emptiness if you don't have an understanding of cause and effect so that your actions become unskillful, unless well, you are sowing the seeds for great suffering in the future. Whereas if you have that understanding of karma, you will be heading in the right direction and hopefully the emptiness will come. So with this, just for a moment, put somebody in the seat in front of you. Somebody who you might have lots of feelings for one way or another, and just send them this caring equanimity. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness, unhappiness, depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. So, with these <clears throat> four Brahma Viharas, 
or all the beautiful wholesome states that arise. If we make it a practice, they will develop so. And if we act on the impulse when the thought comes through, we will strengthen our love and kindness and compassion and balance to act on those seeds, to nourish them. And I end with the Buddha's words. The perfume of sandalwood, rose bay, or jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. So let's sit for a few moments. Feel all the goodness inside of you. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on November 27, 1989. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.